Yes, happy birthday, Mr. President. I hope you're enjoying it so far. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. To celebrate your birthday. I got the feeling that something right. That's why I came. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI and Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on a number of fine affiliates on the Internet. The Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Not that Planet Earth needs a blanket at this point, as warm as it's getting. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling edition of what we call the Bradcast. Glad to have you here. It is another swampy, 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 swampy day as New York's Attorney General sues the so-called Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump Charitable Foundation for all matters of violations of the law, self-dealing, fraudulent activities, and much more that uh, would have absolutely led to years of congressional investigation, special counsels, and chance of lock her up had anything even remotely similar been shown to have been carried out by Hillary Clinton. And if that is not swampy enough for you, Desi Doyen... You will join us for uh, a little bit later for yeah. our latest very swampy green news report in which another sleazy scandal, yet another, involving uh, EPA Chief Scott Pruitt may have finally uh, even brought out s- some Republicans against Scott Pruitt. Yeah, well, you know, eventually at some point somebody might say something if somebody, you're a Republican. Who maybe. Knows? Well, and in fact, we've got a GOP senators now. We've got uh, political action committees and, oh my, at least one primetime Fox News star. I feel like I need a shower already. Also today, a U.S. Supreme Court decision Well, U.S. Supreme Court decision season continues. We have another voting rights related ruling today from the high court. That is the second one this week, which those who believe in uh, clean elections may or may not much like. We will see our regular SCOTUS correspondent Mark Joseph Stern of Slate will be here to discuss both of this week's election related opinions shortly. 
from the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court. But first, former FBI Director James Comey says he disagrees with some of the conclusions of a Justice Department Inspector General's report released on Thursday about his handling of the Hillary Clinton email investigation. Comey says in a tweet that he respects the Inspector General's work and believes the conclusions are reasonable. He says people of good faith can see the, quote, unprecedented situation differently. Boy, howdy, do they? <laughs> Comey's uh, comments come in response to the public release of a report that is heavily critical of his decisions in that probe. The uh, IG report says Comey was un it was insubordinate and de departed from established protocol numerous times, but that his his actions were not politically motivated in any way to help either of the candidates in the 2016 election. The White House says the report by Donald Trump's Justice Department watchdog reaffirms Trump's suspicions about the, quote, political bias among some of the members of the FBI, which you will be shocked to hear is actually the opposite of what the IG report actually finds. The report says Comey was insubordinate in his conduct of the probe, but did not find that he was politically motivated by any sort of political bias. Now, I know everyone is all over that story today, and it opens up far more cans of worms, frankly, than I have any time or interest in uh, opening today. Oh, you're not interested in worm canning today? No, I am not. Uh, but, uh, well, uh, maybe, but just not on that. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll return to that at another time if there's anything above and beyond what everybody else is on about today. Uh, just about everywhere on that, as far as I can tell. Instead, let's focus for a moment on this. As I said, happy birthday, Mr. President. Uh, here's another major lawsuit for you. On Donald Trump's 72nd birthday uh, on Thursday, the New York Attorney's, Attorney General's office filed a major, and I might suggest majorly embarrassing, lawsuit against the President of the United States and his family. As the New York Times Reports it, the New York State Attorney General's office filed a scathingly worded lawsuit on Thursday taking aim at the Donald J. Trump Foundation, accusing the charity and the Trump family of sweeping violations of campaign finance laws, self-dealing, and illegal coordination with the presidential campaign. Lock them up. The lawsuit, which seeks to dissolve the foundation and bar President Trump and three of his children from serving on nonprofit organizations, was an extraordinary rebuke of a sitting president, says the Times. The attorney general also sent referral letters to the Internal Revenue Service and the Federal Election uh, Commission for possible future, uh, further action by those two agencies adding to Mr. Trump's extensive legal challenges. The lawsuit alleges illegal activity that took place over more than a decade, including, quote, extensive unlawful political coordination with the Trump presidential campaign, repeated and willful self-dealing transactions to benefit Mr. Trump's personal and business interests, and violations of basic legal obligations for nonprofit foundations. The civil, not criminal, the civil lawsuit accuses the president, along with Ivanka Trump, Eric Trump, and Donald Trump Jr., 
of violating multiple counts of state and federal law. Trump boasted frequently during and before his 2016 campaign of his personal generosity, but the Washington Post's David Farenthold, who reported uh, very deeply on this at the time back in 2016, found that Trump's pledges were largely unverifiable at best and that his private charity was, in fact, funded largely by others. The foundation frequently gave uh, to causes that benefited Donald Trump or his businesses in some way. The Post reported in the run up to the election and this lawsuit seems to bear much of that reporting out. The New York state lawsuit now alleges much of what Farenthold found that many of Trump's supposedly charitable contributions amounted to little more than self-dealing. Foundation funds were used to pay off Trump-owned companies' legal obligations, including a $100,000 payment to a charity that was mandated in the legal settlement of a lawsuit between his private Mar-a-Lago club and the city of Palm Beach, Florida. So his private club got into a legal dispute with Palm Beach, and they settled it. He said, OK, I'll give you $100,000. And he didn't give them $100,000. His business didn't give them $100,000. Mar-a-Lago didn't give them $100,000. His charitable foundation gave them $100,000. That's not how you're supposed to use charitable foundations. Charity funds were also used to purchase personal items, including that $10,000 painting of Donald Trump himself that was displayed in a private Trump building. That's another incident of self-dealing, according to the petition. And to uh, and also he used the funds to influence the 2016 presidential campaign, according to the suit. Charitable organizations are strictly prohibited from getting involved in politics or influencing campaigns under federal law. But the suit alleges that from the days before the Iowa caucuses on, the campaign itself specifically directed foundation resources, very specifically from the campaign, from the chairman of the campaign, telling the foundation, hey, write a check for this or that. Illegal, unlawful. The uh, New York Times reports that in 2012, a man named uh, Martin Greenberg sued the Trump National Golf Club after he had made a hole in one at a fundraising golf tournament that had promised to pay one million dollars to golfers who uh, got a hole in one on the 13th hole, as this guy Greenberg did. And then the uh, Trump organization refused to pay him the million dollars. As part of a settlement in that suit, the Charitable Foundation paid the guy $158,000, actually paid it to his own uh, foundation. The foundation also paid $5,000 to uh, one organization for, quote, promotional space featuring Trump International Hotels. So, in other words, the foundation was used to buy ads for, uh, for, for the Trump hotel business. And uh, paid for another 32000 to satisfy a pledge made by a privately held entity controlled by Trump to a charitable land trust. 
one thing after another in this suit. It sounds remarkably almost like money laundering. You think? Yeah, like people give foundation, give money to his foundation, and yep. then he uses that money well, to pay right, it out. Well, that's right, because much of this money was not did not come from him. Most of the money did not come from him. It came from other people that he then funneled out to someone else. Much of the uh, petition's findings of wrongdoing come from this uh, fundraiser, you'll recall, that Trump threw in Iowa on the same day as a Republican presidential candidate debate that he refused to attend during his uh, short-lived dispute with Fox News. The event was thrown together uh, as a political stunt, according to the suit, casting Trump as a generous philanthropist, raising millions of dollars for veterans. And while uh, $2.8 million of the funds raised went instead to the Trump Foundation itself, not to the veterans or uh, veterans groups, as Trump had pretended at the time. After the event, campaign staff then directed foundation disbursement of funds and used the donations to support campaign endeavors, according to the suit, and that money quote, provided Mr. Trump and the campaign a means to take credit for the donations in a variety of ways for political gain. That is strictly unlawful. Uh, and uh, again, had Hillary Clinton done anything even close to that with the Clinton Family Foundation, I can only imagine how loud the chance of lock her up would still be to this day. Enlarged foundation checks with the presidential candidate's name on them were displayed at campaign events, even in cases where the foundation hadn't actually written a check. They were phony checks. In one instance, the suit, uh, the suit cites an email sent by Trump's then campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, telling the foundation to cut a $100,000 check to the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation after the media started to look into all of this. It's the campaign itself telling the charitable foundation what to do. Washington Post uh, found that although Trump's name is on the foundation, uh, Trump did not donate any money to the foundation between 2008 and 2015. Instead, the money came from wrestling moguls Vince and Linda McMahon. Linda was later appointed to the Trump administration as the small business administrator. Uh, so uh, Ivanka, Eric and Donald, they were on the foundation's board for years, but the board had not met since 1999. A state investigator asked uh, one of the guys who was listed as the uh, I think the treasurer. He was on the board um, and he explained in a deposition that there was no policy for the disbursement of funds. He was asked if he knew that he was actually on the Trump Foundation for more than a decade. He said, I did not. The attorney general is seeking to dissolve the foundation uh, and obtain restitution of some $2.8 million. It would bar the president from serving as a director on a New York nonprofit for a decade. It would ban Ivanka, Eric and Don Jr. from doing the same for, for a year. The AG has sent letters identifying potential violations to the FEC and the IRS as well. So in theory, there could be many more attempts here at accountability brought on the federal level by those two agencies. In the meantime, however, while there is much focus on Trump's worsening personal legal woes as ever, his stolen U.S. Supreme Court continues to damage all of our legal rights Two voting rights rulings came out of the high court this week, and we will talk about both of them and try to wrap our brains around them. 
That's next with Slate legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You gotta fight for your right to <laughs> I'm not sure why that feels appropriate to me today, uh, but... You know, Beastie Boys, any excuse, really. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The Supreme Court on Thursday struck down Minnesota's broad restrictions on voters wearing political hats, T-shirts and pins to the polls. But they said states can place limits on such apparel. Minnesota contended their restrictions were reasonable kept order at the polling places and prevented voter intimidation. But the U.S. Supreme Court justices in a 7-2 ruling on Thursday said the state's limits on political clothing at the polling place violate the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that, it quote, if a state wishes to set its polling places apart as areas free of partisan discord... That sounds like a good idea. It must employ a more discernible approach than the one Minnesota has offered here. Most states restrict what people can wear when they vote, but Minnesota's restraints were some of the broadest, according to the court. State law bars voters from casting a ballot while wearing clothing related to a campaign, such as a T-shirt with the name of a candidate. It also said voters couldn't wear a political badge or political button or other political insignia while voting. That was part of state of the state law that was challenged and invalidated by the Supreme Court on Thursday after a Tea Party group challenged the law over a 2010 dispute that began over Tea Party t-shirts and buttons with the word with the words please ID me. That's a reference to legislation that was then under discussion in Minnesota that would have required residents to show photo ID to vote. The legislation did not become law. Minnesota, citing their state statute, which the court has now struck down, argued that those T-shirts and buttons were barred inside the polling place. Today, Chief Justice John Roberts, writing for the 7-2 majority, argued otherwise. Also this week, in a much more divided 5-4 ruling that split along the court's partisan lines, the right-wing majority found in favor of a radical voter purge scheme in the swing state of Ohio, which will now allow states to begin the voter roll purge process after a voter fails to vote in one single federal election. Here to explain both of these rulings and cases and what they may or may not mean, as promised during this busy SCOTUS Opinion Month, is the great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate, who I am dubbing our Supreme Correspondent this month. He covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, and much more for Slate.com. And as threatened, he will be joining us more frequently than usual this month as the Supreme Court will be releasing a huge number of important opinions somehow over the next two or three weeks. Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so 
much for having me on. Always a pleasure, especially in the wretched month of June. Yeah, I have no idea how the court is going to release all of their outstanding uh, uh, decisions. Outstanding, not not necessarily mean good decisions, but uh, are the waiting <laughs> decisions uh, in the next two weeks alone, Mark. But, I mean, will they actually get them all out in yeah. June? Yes, they will. Uh, everyone always says each June, how could they possibly get them all out? And somehow they do because... These guys want to leave town. <laughs> they have fancy European conferences and cushy teaching gigs, and they have their Julys all booked up, and they want to get out of Dodge. So uh, just believe in the Chief Justice. For whatever else he does, <laughs> he will definitely get those opinions across the transom by June 30th. Uh, it has been uh, a record of ending at the end of June, and I don't think he'll break it this year. All right. Well, you're going to have a very very busy month, I'm afraid, and I guess that means so will we. Uh, I'm surprised, actually, there wasn't more released this week, and I want to get to both of those voting rights-related cases I mentioned here in a moment. But uh, as the New York Attorney General has filed a pretty major lawsuit against the President of the United States and his family today, charging essentially that Donald Trump was using his Trump Foundation charity as a personal and business slush fund, uh, as I read it, to take care of legal obligations and as a, a campaign tool. I wanted to get your thoughts on that challenge. Is this a, a good case against the president, as you see it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the question is not whether this case is uh, strong on its merits. It absolutely is. Just reading the complaint, it's so obvious that uh, this charity engaged in illegal um, electioneering and self-dealing. Self -dealing. Uh, the question is how far its reach really is, because this does not charge Donald Trump or his family with any criminal laws. These are all civil penalties, civil violations. Um, so, yes, it's a great lawsuit because it explores and lays out in very vivid detail how Trump and his family use this charity as a slush fund to pay off, for instance, state attorneys general uh, whose support they wanted. Pam Bondi in Florida mm -hmm. got a big chunk of money from the fund, mm -hmm. uh, used it to uh, settle lawsuits that the Trump family wanted gone, uh, including the notorious suit over the flagpoles, uh, Trump's property, Mar-a-Lago in mm -hmm. South Florida, um, just used it basically, as you said, as pocket change uh, to make problems disappear, go away. There's even a note in Donald Trump's own handwriting uh, affirming uh, that the money from the charity could be used for these purposes, which is absolutely illegal uh, under state law, also under federal law. I think that's terrific. You know, there's no doubt in my mind that this case is going to lead to some very awkward courtroom encounters, some dueling briefs. It's going to make Trump's lawyers even busier than they already were. Uh, but yeah. it's not going to land him uh, or his associates or friends behind bars or anything like that. Uh, sh should it? Uh, did, she pull, <laughs> did she pull some punches here? Or is that uh, basically the way the law works when it comes to these charity foundations? So that's a great question. I think that there are some um, some seeds planted in this opening uh, complaint that could sprout into something even more severe and dramatic mm. for Trump and his family. So there are a number of times when uh, the complaint notes that Trump and his family filed these uh, tax returns or tax documents that contained outright lies, right, that, that just 
falsely declared that money was going one place when it was going somewhere else, uh, somewhere else that was illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the document notes that uh, Trump signed these documents under penalty of perjury. Right. So what I think this complaint sets up quite neatly for the next round, if the Trump family tries to fight this, um, is an even harsher uh, series of attacks on Trump and his family by New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood, or perhaps her uh, successor, saying, not only did you misuse money, but you lied to the federal government in misusing this money. And remember, uh, Mueller has been most successful in nabbing Trump's associates for lying to the federal government. That is, for instance, how they got George Papadopoulos, how they got him to flip and what they charged him with. Mm -hmm. So this is, to me, a kind of uh, a parallel to the Mueller playbook setting up all of the substantive crimes first, noting that, yes, these are civil crimes, but in their commission, Trump and his family and friends may have committed uh, much more severe crimes that incur actual criminal penalties. And I think it uh, should be noted here that this was filed, uh, as I understand it, in state court. Uh, so there can be, essentially, just to underscore, there can be no pardoning. Donald Trump can't pardon himself or his, uh, his, his family here, as I understand it because it's a state affair as of now. But, Mark, is it fair to say, I know it's sort of a tired trope, but I think it needs to be underscored here. Otherwise, we're you know sort of normalizing this. But is it fair to say that if Hillary Clinton had become president and this very same case had been brought against her and the Clinton Foundation instead of Donald Trump and the Trump Foundation, that we would have years of congressional hearings about this, calls for impeachment. We'd probably see an impeachment based on on this suit alone, on the pretty obvious self-dealing that the New York Attorney General cites in her lawsuit against him. I mean, of course, there's no question. You say it's a it's a trope, but it's a trope because it's so outrageously right. true. This yeah. is... Well, Right. It's just one of so many things that Trump has done that if Hillary Clinton had done one one hundredth of it, she would be drawn and quartered. You know, the Clinton Foundation, um, for whatever complaints Republicans had about it, it did actual charitable work. It did incredibly important work on, to give one example, uh, AIDS prevention and HIV treatment in Africa. The Mm -hmm. Trump Foundation, Trump's charity did nothing. It did no good work at all. It was useless. It was a shell designed exclusively to pay out to Trump's friends and cronies and to settle these absurd lawsuits against him. Uh, not absurd because, you know, they were frivolous, but because he was such an obvious malefactor. Right. And so I think you're, you, you've hit the nail on the head. This is just such an egregious double standard. And it's so offensive to me that Republicans don't even now pretend to care. After years of maligning the Clinton Foundation, which was doing actual good work, we learned that the Trump Foundation was outwardly corrupt and Republicans just shrugged. And yeah, I mean, don't forget, that was that uh, that chant that we still hear, lock her up, was based on uh, purportedly what she had done with the Clinton Foundation or what her family had done with the Clinton Foundation, among other things. So here you have the exact same thing, except brought against him and, and actually legitimately so we didn't see that kind of thing with the uh with the clinton foundation something as as just direct and obvious as we're seeing in this case and uh, i'm sure they will do uh, whatever they can to not notice it as quickly as possible in congress and amongst his base 
Uh, in any event, Mark, let's move on to the Supreme Court here. Uh, let's start with today's uh, uh, Supreme Court ruling in Minnesota Voters Alliance versus Mansky in which the court, by a 7-2 to two decision, determined, as far as I can tell, that, yes, groups like the Tea Party can wear political T-shirts and buttons, etc., in the polling place. That that seems disturbing to me on the surface, but your colleague uh, Rick Hassan at, uh, at Slate, uh, UC Irvine uh, election law expert, says that, that the uh, ruling... In this case, was a good one, and in fact, two of the court's liberals—I uh, think it was Elena Kagan and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg—surprisingly went along with the right-wing majority here. Uh, why? Yes, yeah, so I agree with Rick, and the reason why is because this opinion is very narrow. Uh, it does not say that all kinds of uh, restrictions on political apparel uh, in the in the polls are illegal. What it says is that Minnesota's precise manner of regulating political apparel is basically way too vague and broad. Uh, and I think that's right. Uh, and here's a great example as to why. Uh, Minnesota just outright bans any kind of, quote, political insignia uh, at the polls on Election Day. Now, the court has said before that states do have broad authority to ban electioneering and campaigning at the polls. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely right. This has traditionally been a place of tranquility, of peace, where voters can go in and make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. But what Minnesota did was define political insignia so broadly that anything could be found to fall under that category or not to fall under that category. So here's an example. During oral arguments, Minnesota's lawyer said that a shirt with a rainbow on it would not be political unless there were a question about gay rights on the ballot, in which case it would be political. Uh, he also said that the text of the Second Amendment on a shirt would be political and thus banned, but the text of the First Amendment would not be political, hmm. and so that person could enter. And the problem here with this inconsistency is that it's not just abstract or theoretical. There are actual election judges who are basically just civilians mm -hmm. who work at the polls and have to decide who gets in and who doesn't. And they are tasked with interpreting this absurdly broad and vague law. And so what Chief Justice Roberts said in his opinion, which I think is quite right, is that even if they don't have malign motives, they may allow their political preferences to determine what they view as unduly political and what they view as acceptable. And under the First Amendment, that kind of broad leeway to censor expression just isn't permissible. He, he cited um, California and Texas law, uh, which have you know similar laws banning what can be said and done and worn in a, in a polling place. What is it about their laws, our laws in California, that is, is different than from Minnesota's law on this? I'm, I'm having trouble understanding the distinction here. So it's a subtle but important one. Um, your law out there in California uh, is much narrower because it expressly says that voters are barred from wearing uh, any, any kind of clothing or accessories that uh, uh, support or oppose a political candidate or a ballot measure. So you cannot walk into the polls with a shirt that says, vote for Hillary, or vote for Proposition 8, or vote against Proposition 68. Uh, that is a clear sort of 
up or down, uh, mm-hmm. this is acceptable and this is not line drawn in the sand. You could definitely wear a rainbow flag shirt. You could wear a shirt with all kinds of different text. You just can't say, yes, I support this particular candidate or no, I oppose mm. this particular candidate. So I can wear a, uh, a MAGA, a Make America Great hat when I go to vote in, uh, in 2018, or I can wear a Trump sucks t-shirt in 2018? Yes. And I think that, you know, that is a fair line to draw. I don't know if it's the one I would draw if I were a legislator, mm-hmm. but if you, if you are a state government and you want to protect polling places' sanctity, but you want to let people engage in some political expression, then that seems like a decent line. You know, a state could also just say no, uh, no political expression at all, including support or rejection for a particular candidate, and that would probably pass constitutional muster. Again, the problem here was opening the door halfway and then leaving it really ambiguous who could get in that door and who couldn't. So in, in 2018, at the midterms, under California law, which they cited as acceptable, I could wear a Make America Great hat or a Trump sucks T-shirt at the polling place in California. But in 2020, when Donald Trump himself would be on the ballot, then I could not wear a MAGA hat or a Trump sucks shirt. You know, you actually probably could, because, again, this law is, ter- is tailored so narrowly that it has to be express support or opposition to the individual. So just saying, uh, make America great again, one of his catchphrases, or Trump sucks, you're passing judgment on his character, on his brand, whatever. Mm-hmm. What you couldn't do is wear a shirt that says, vote for Trump or vote against Trump. Is that an artificial distinction? Maybe, but it's one that's drawn quite frequently in election law. And if there has to be a dividing line here, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable one. Uh, I'm not so sure I concur there. I mean, that's the same thing. That's the sort of the line that they use when it comes to political ads and these outside groups. They're not supposedly, you know, they're not allowed to say vote for Hillary, but they can say, uh, you know, Donald Trump is ruining America or whatever. I, it seems like all the lines at that point are gone, and I understand it's in uh, in support of the First Amendment, which I support. But I, I, you know, I don't know how you have some laws and not the others. And I guess that's what uh, the, what the Supreme Court was trying to figure out here in this ruling. Well, yes, and and actually, you know, even though I. I think that the line that California attempted to draw is a decent one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I don't think it's the one that I would draw because it still does leave the ambiguities that you were discussing uh, as well as others. So, for instance, you had a proposition about gun control on the ballot not long ago. Uh, Well, if you wore a shirt with the text of the Second Amendment, couldn't an election judge then just say, well, you are opposing uh, this ballot initiative that infringes on the right to bear arms? You know, the ambiguities remain. It seems to me, if I were a legislator, I would say no political expression at all at the polls. If you have a MAGA hat, you got to take it off. If you have a Second Amendment shirt, you got to cover it up. To me, you should just draw a firm line in the sand if you're a state government and say, you know what? People get to vote at the polls. They're no longer campaigning or electioneering. They are casting their ballot. That's where I draw the line. But again, most states have decided otherwise. And I, you know, I do admit it is a difficult 
difficult line. I mean, in a case like that, you know, if I wore a, a T-shirt that just had a photograph of a gun on it, am I then, you know, supporting guns, opposing guns, the, the First Amendment or Second Amendment, uh, if that was on the ballot? I do, I do recognize it is a tough call. All right. In another tough call, I think, actually, uh, more so than than people may uh, see this as in Ohio. Uh, we covered this uh, this Monday ruling a few days ago, the case of Husted versus A. Philip Randolph Institute, in which voting rights advocates in Ohio sued the state of Ohio and uh, and GOP Secretary of State John Husted for his voter purge scheme, which begins the process of removing voters from the rolls after failing to vote in just one federal election. The lower Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals had found the scheme was in violation of the 1993 National Voter Registration Act, or NVRA, sometimes known as the Motor Voter Law, that bars removing voters from the rolls, quote, by reason of the person's failure to vote. Nonetheless, in a sharply divided 5-4 to four ruling, the stolen U.S. Supreme Court majority opinion written by Justice Alito overturned the lower court, said that Ohio's voter roll purge was just fine, thanks. So um, before we look at some questions related to this ruling, Mark, uh, and the way it was supported by the Trump DOJ, very quickly, uh, on what did Alito base his opinion to support this voter roll purge scheme that seems to be in violation of the very text of the uh, National Voter Registration Act? Right. So what Alito says is that Ohio does not purge individuals based solely on their failure to vote. Alito says, yes, Ohio begins the purge process if you skip one single federal election, uh, but it does send you a card in the mail uh, at your registered address, uh, and if you don't return that, it uses that as evidence as well that you uh, no longer live there or may even no longer live in the state. And so Alito says it's not just a purge-based solely on your failure to vote. It's a purge based on your failure to vote in three consecutive federal elections and to return a card. Uh, Now, I think that that is a very dubious distinction uh, because the card that is sent to you in the mail truly looks like a CVS mailer. It is not at all striking or obviously official government mail, uh, but Alito says it suffices it counts and it comports with the NVRA um, because the individual's failure to return the card is part of why they are purged from the rolls. It's not just their failure to cast a ballot. And that's only uh, one chance? You just get uh, that one card? I mean, you have three chances, I guess. You have to miss three federal elections in a row. So if you don't vote in midterms uh, and then you choose to, you know, in general, as many people don't vote in midterms, and then you happen to sit out one presidential election, you'll be tossed as long as you don't return this card. Do they only have to send that card in the mail one time to you under Ohio's scheme? Uh, and there is a, uh, an opportunity for uh, election officials to send it more frequently, to actually try to figure out if you live there. Um, but what we have seen, and we'll talk about this, uh, is that election officials tend to engage in targeted purges. Yep. They are not just purging upper-middle-class communities. They are purging lower-class, lower-income minority communities. And to those individuals, they are sending one single card and then purging them as 
soon as they possibly can. And the Supreme Court says that's just fine, and I expect we'll see this now, the same scheme from other Republican-controlled states. Uh, one point on here, you note in your, uh, in your coverage at Slate that the uh, NVRA prohibits any state from removing a voter from the rolls, quote, by reason of person's failure to vote, but that Congress actually later amended the NVRA to further clarify that, quote, no registrant may be removed solely by reason of a failure to vote. When was that change made? And is there reason to believe that the word solely was actually added there for exactly this reason of what we saw the uh, Supreme Court do on Monday? Right. So that change happened in 2003. Uh, The Help America Vote Act was passed in the wake of the disastrous 2000 election. We won't speak any more about it, but uh, (laughs) Congress recognized that there was a problem. Uh, It passed this suite of reforms, and one of those reforms amended the NVRA to add this language. Um, Now, the theory is, of course, uh, um, by the theory promulgated by Alito and by opponents of uh, voting rights and by supporters of the purge, is exactly what you just said, that Congress added the word solely to clarify that so long as you tossed in some other factor, mm. whether it be a phone call or an in-person check or a piece of undelivered mail, mm. um, that that gets you in the clear and that that allows you to engage in a purge. But there is no evidence at all that this bill, which was passed with a massive bipartisan majority, was designed to subvert one of the foundational principles of the NVRA, which was, and it says this, the the goal here was to protect Americans' right to vote and not to vote. The NVRA was very clear that not voting is a civil right, just as voting is a civil right. Um, And so the, the word solely, to Alito, that does all the work. But to Breyer and the dissenters, and and I think they have the better argument, um, that still doesn't carry the day because the reality is that the purge process in Ohio begins once an individual has skipped one federal election. And that is not true right now of any other state. It soon will be, but it wasn't when either of these laws passed. And it doesn't seem like Congress had Ohio's scheme in mind at all. Quite the opposite. It appears that what Congress really wanted to do was protect individuals from getting identified for a potential purge based solely on their failure to vote. And uh, That is the better reading. And, and Breyer's uh, uh, dissent here notes that uh, he argues that, yeah, even though they send that card, it is still based on solely the failure to vote because if a person even if they get the card but they don't return it but then they show up to vote at the next federal election they will be allowed to vote and the purge process will be stopped so it is only their failure to vote that ends up i guess uh, resulting in them not uh, no longer being on the voting rolls at least that's the argument that Breyer makes in his dissent that's absolutely right. And so uh, you have this, this failure to vote triggering your purge in two different ways. First, it, you are identified for a purge because you didn't vote just one single time. And second, you are purged because you failed to cast a ballot. Again, that would seem to go against not just the text, but the express purpose of both of these laws. Uh, and so for Alito to claim that 
he's just following the text of the law and the dissenters are trying to enact their own policy, that rings absolutely false to me. I've got two other aspects of this case that I want to ask you about in the short time we have left, uh, Mark. So you write that um, about the fact that the Department of Justice here uh, under Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions actually switched positions in this case. The Obama administration's DOJ had been defending the National Voting uh, uh, Voting Rights Act here, uh, Voter Registration Act here. We saw the DOJ do that as well this uh, past week in a case where they had previously defended the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Uh, the DOJ had uh, flipped positions in the in that Texas gerrymandering case. How unusual is it for an administration to actually switch sides in a case as the Trump DOJ has now apparently done time after time since taking office? It is extremely unusual, and it is something that I hope we do not just grow numb to, um, because this was once a very taboo thing to do. Uh, there is this expectation that the Justice Department, and particularly the Office of Solicitor General, uh, values institutional competence uh, and consistency over shifting partisan tailwinds. And so every new administration winds up defending a few positions early on that it probably would not have uh, if it had its original say. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. The Obama administration did it. It inherited some Bush litigation it didn't love, but it maintained those positions. Um, and the Trump administration has just entirely shattered this rule, really kind of a governing norm. Uh, and, and as you said, Jeff Sessions has flipped positions on uh, so many issues, labor rights, environmental rights, gender equality, voting rights, just uh, now everything you can pretty much imagine. Uh, if Jeff Sessions doesn't like the old position, he won't just withdraw, he'll flip and say, now we're supporting the exact opposite side. And never has he given a good explanation for why. It's clearly just partisanship. And under a longstanding norm that may now be no more, partisanship was not a good enough reason to switch positions at the DOJ. Apparently it is now. Uh, Justice uh, Sotomayor, in her uh, separate dissent in this uh, Ohio case, she offered an argument which Alito rejected in uh, not necessarily because she was wrong, but because he says, and I, and I think correctly in this case, that the challenge to Ohio's uh, voter purge scheme here brought by the plaintiffs did not make this particular case regarding the disproportionate effect that Ohio's scheme has on low income and minority voters. An analysis found, for example, that folks who lived in uh, in Democratic leaning jurisdictions were about twice as likely to be purged under the scheme as those who lived in uh, in Republican leaning uh, uh, jurisdictions. That means that uh, low income and minority voters were more affected than anyone else. But uh, and that would be in violation, I think, of the Voting Rights Act. But that was not the case that the uh, plaintiffs brought here do you expect that the plaintiffs, I understand, are, are looking at Alito's uh, ruling and thinking, well, they may be able to come back against this same law under that separate basis uh, concerning the disproportionate impact or disproportionate effect that it has on, uh, on, on minority and low-income voters? Well, look, I think that Justice 
Merrick Garland would certainly strike down Ohio's purges as having a disparate impact on minority voters. Uh, but unfortunately, I think that uh, the current Supreme Court conservative majority featuring the stolen seats uh, that Neil Gorsuch occupies mm-hmm. uh, really kind of rejects the fundamental legitimacy of disparate impact lawsuits. Uh, you know, Justice Scalia, before he died, basically said that disparate, disparate impact lawsuits were unconstitutional, which is really absurd and bizarre. Um, but the other conservative justices are also very, very wary of disparate impact lawsuits, mm-hmm. even though the Voting Rights Act expressly declares that state election laws that have a disproportionate burden on uh, racial minorities are unlawful. This Supreme Court is extraordinarily hesitant to actually apply that law. Uh, And I think that if the litigants here thought they had a chance to win under that theory, they would have raised it, and it's very telling that they didn't. So, look, I think Sotomayor is absolutely right. I think that Ohio's purge process is doubly unlawful because it doesn't just violate the NVRA, it clearly violates the Voting Rights Act. But, you know, Alito's decision sort of swatting away that argument does not bode well for future litigation based on the VRA. That's uh, very troubling, uh, given that what what appears to be a very, you know, clear racial disparity in in the, in this particular scheme uh, and uh, the idea that we've been, I guess, uh, dealing with uh, with the court over the recent years, whether that, uh, you know, yes, the Voting Rights Act says you cannot have this racial disparity, but you have to sort of prove, I guess, that it was deliberately done. I mean, if they, they would have to come up with emails saying, hey, if we do this purge in this way, that will end up resulting in Democrats not being able to vote. If, if you came up with something like that, a smoking gun, if you will, would that be accepted by this court or they don't even care about racial disparity anymore, period? Uh, I can only hope it would be accepted. Uh, In theory, a smoking gun, say, uh, you know, the Secretary of State of Ohio saying, I want to purge black people from the rolls, that would be not only unlawful under the, under the Voting Rights Act, but unconstitutional as a clear violation of equal protection. Uh, yet, once again, this is the same court that issued Shelby Counter v. Holder. This is the same yeah. court, plus Neil Gorsuch, who's even worse than Scalia, uh, that just basically tore a hole through the middle of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. I do not see these justices ever issuing a good ruling protecting racial minorities' right to vote. It's just not something we're going to get from this court. The best that we can hope for is that some lower court strikes down this law, and for whatever reason, the Supreme Court decides not to take it up again. But even the lower courts are increasingly Trumpified, and it is just dark days for voting rights. Another disturbing but enlightening visit from our friend Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. You should you read his work there every day and also follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark, I look forward to talking to you in a few days as this uh, mountain of uh, probably troubling rulings continues to come out from the Supreme Court, my friend. Thank you very much. uh, Always a pleasure, and I'll have more bad news for you soon. I don't look forward to it. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) All right, speaking of bad news, Desi Doyne joins us next for the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. No time for chit nor chat. <laughs> Indeed. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. He is about as swampy as you get. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt finally losing support among Republicans amid another new scandal. We see an increased vulnerability to ice loss from Antarctica. Antarctica's ice melting three times faster than predicted. DNC bans corporate fossil fuel donations. Plus, electric cars have become so cheap to drive, even the Trump administration can't ignore them. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Well, look, I care so much about taxpayer money, but these uh, distractions largely, I think, have emanated from the great work that we've been doing. Actually, they emanate from the fact that you're a corrupt fossil fuel stooge. Other than that, keep up the good work, Scott Pruitt. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I can't believe we're covering Scott Pruitt again. I can't believe he still has a job. Yes, but at least Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt is now losing support among high-profile Republicans for his numerous ethics scandals and lavish spending. For his latest scandal, Washington Post reports that Pruitt pressured an EPA employee on government time to contact wealthy Republican donors to give his wife a job. I have no snarky comments left. That prompted Fox News host Laura Ingram this week to call for Pruitt to be fired for his, quote, bad judgment. And in a podcast interview with Platt's media outlet, Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst was blunt. He is about as swampy as you get here in Washington, D.C. And if the president wants to drain the swamp, he needs to take a, a look at his own cabinet. This week, the America Future Fund, a nonprofit right-wing group that does not disclose its donors, has launched a new TV ad campaign criticizing Pruitt. Scott Pruitt is a swamp monster. Mr. President, you know what to do. Get fired. For the good of the country, Pruitt must go. A swamp monster. Of course, note that they are mad at Pruitt for making Trump look bad, not for harming the health of Americans. Right. And Joni Ernst is mad because she comes from Iowa, a corn state, and Scott Pruitt is messing with ethanol. Meanwhile, in a victory for activists and environmental advocates, the Democratic National Committee has quietly voted to unanimously ban contributions from fossil fuel companies and corporate political action committees associated with fossil fuel companies. Companies. Good for them. Why are they doing it quietly? That's an excellent question. The DNC ban does not affect the two other major party committees to elect Democrats to the House and the Senate, the DCCC or the DSCC. 
Antarctica is melting faster than scientists anticipated, according to an international team of ice experts publishing in the journal Nature. Antarctica's melt rate has tripled in the last six years due to warming oceans melting ice sheets from underneath. That's not good. Nope. The scientists warn that if the ice continues to melt at this faster rate, it poses a grim future for the world's coastal cities and low-lying countries where more than a billion people live, causing irreversible sea level rise much faster than predicted, giving those communities much less time to prepare than previously hoped. No wonder Donald Trump didn't want to sit in on that session about sea level rise at the G7. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., a new National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration study finds that coastal flooding has doubled in the United States over the last 30 years, with a rapid increase in high tide flooding. That's flooding even on sunny days, even in the absence of any storms. Such high tide flooding used to occur only during major storms, maybe once in a decade. But according to NOAA, some U.S. cities saw more than 20 days of high tide flooding in just the last year. That's not good either. That's already affecting the value of the housing market in Florida. A new Harvard study finds that as nuisance flooding increases with rising seas, homes at higher elevations in Miami-Dade County are increasing in value at a much faster rate than homes at lower elevations. The researchers call it climate gentrification, with homes vulnerable to flooding at risk of losing value. But Mar-a-Lago still safe with that seawall they have down there? No, they are not. Sorry to hear it. But finally, some good Good news. Climate Progress reports that electric cars have become so cheap to drive that even the Trump administration can't ignore them. A report from Trump's own Department of Energy admits that it is much cheaper to drive an electric car any distance than it is to drive a comparable gasoline car. Nationally, consumers with electric cars save on fuel costs on average 60 percent over conventional gas-powered internal combustion engine cars. The administration might not be ignoring it, but you can bet that Donald Trump and Scott Pruitt certainly are. Indeed. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Hit the road, Jack. Don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back no more. Indeed, we've got to hit the road here. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can download our shows anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. And thank you to those who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us keep doing what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah!